Well, this morning we're in our last look at the book of Acts, and I'm going to really disappoint you if you are planning on hearing a sermon from Acts chapter 16. You're not going to. Read it this afternoon. You might see why I've decided to skip a chapter. It's a bit bitty, Acts chapter 16. So finishing off the book of Acts this morning, we're going to Acts chapter 17. And I'm not sure who's going to read it. Is it Dylan or Amy? Amy is going to come and read to us. We're in Acts chapter 17, starting at verse 16. It's entitled, In Athens. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stotic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where he, where they said to him, may we know what this good news is, is that you are, te- that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas into our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with it with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by hands. He is not served by human he is not saved by human hands, and if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should in- inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of his as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine that di- that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof to this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was the Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Thanks, Amy. Shall we pray as we come and look, that, look at that passage together? Do you keep your Bibles open? You will need it as we go through that this morning. So let's pray. Dear Lord, would you give us hearts that are open to you this morning? As we look at what is quite a key passage in the book of Acts, as we look at Paul preaching in this city of Athens, Lord, there are so many things that can relate to us today and how we share you with our world.
And Lord, I just want to pray that you will give us really receptive hearts to hear what your Spirit is saying in our individual situations. Lord, we want to see the good news of Jesus told in Lim, told in this area, told in the towns and villages around. And Lord, we need your wisdom and we need your Spirit if we're going to do that effectively. So Lord, would you inspire us this morning? Would you keep us on track with you? And we ask it in your name. Amen. It was brilliant yesterday, wasn't it, for those of you who were at breakfast in Bethlehem. It was our first experience of it, and it was absolutely fantastic. And there were quite a few people came up to me and said, actually, breakfast in Bethlehem always feels like the start of Christmas. You know, I'm, I'm just a bit unnerved by this thing here. <laughs> keep feeling like I want to interview him, but anyway, just, just ignore him. I'll let him unnerve me as we, as we go on. But... It is feeling like the start of Christmas, isn't it? This morning we've been singing a couple of songs that have a sort of Christmas theme to them. I'm going to tell you a very sad story. Once when I was about five or six, I got my dates for Christmas wrong. And I thought Christmas was on the 5th of December. And so I remember getting to the 5th of December and thinking, where are my presents? And I had to remember then, I was reminded that actually you've got another 20 days to wait. Now, as a four or five or six-year-old, I can't remember exactly how old I was, that waiting is really hard. Can you remember back to when you were a child? Yes? Can you remember that period of waiting for Christmas or for birthdays? Waiting can be difficult, can't it? Waiting can be that time when you're thinking, actually, what do I do now? What is going to fill in this gap? Well, this passage that we're looking at this morning starts with Paul waiting. He's in Athens He's waiting, actually, for Silas and Timothy to join him, and then they're going to carry on from there. But Paul is not a man who is going to just use waiting as a way of hanging around, of sitting about. He's not going to spend his time, you know, next to the swimming pool in the nice Greek sunshine, you know, sat there eating masaka. That's not Paul's style. Paul is going to use this time for something incredibly serious. Because for Paul, all spaces, all times of waiting, is an opportunity to share the gospel. Everything can be used by God. Everything can be used by God. So while he's in Athens, he goes for a look around. Who's been to Athens? I can put my hand up for this one. I've been to Athens. And there it is in the sunshine. That makes us feel a bit envious, doesn't it, when we're sat in, was it Storm Desmond that we've had this week? And, you know, we're looking at that sunshine and we're thinking, one day, one day. But Athens had been a great city of the ancient world. It was famous for its temples. It was famous for its philosophers, these great thinkers of the ancient world. It was a city, you can still see them there, beautiful buildings. Anyone from Rill here today? You might just want to cover your ears up so I don't really offend you in the next (laughs) few moments. I don't see any hands going up. Rill is a town, um, if you don't know where it is, it's on the North Wales coast, and it's a seaside town. Now, as a child... Um, we used to go there occasionally for a day out with like church groups and things. And there was the sun, is it the sun center that used to be in real? There was a big theme park, but it's all gone. It's quite a decayed place if you go there now. It's a place that just lives off its past reputation. Athens was a bit like the real of the ancient world. It was living off its past reputation rather than its present reality. By the time Paul was there, it was not this great sort of pinnacle of society but it was still a place of thinking. It was still a place where people would go. But it was more to do with its past than with its present. So Paul is there, and he thinks, what an opportunity. What an evangelistic opportunity. 
So if you've got the passage in front of you, see where he starts. He starts up in the synagogue, and he begins preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. There were some Jews in Athens. There were some God-fearers there, so he starts with them. This is his practice up to now in the book of Acts. But Athens is a complicated place. It's a place that is full of different temples, of different idols, of different philosophies, and it's going to be difficult to get the gospel message to cut through all this clutter of other people's beliefs. I don't know about you, but I think that sounds a bit like our society today. You know, we live in a country where by 2050, if the current trends continue, Christianity will be very much a minority religion. In our world today, there are 4,200 religions, many of which have some kind of representation in this country. And the more clutter, the more different voices there are claiming to be the truth, the more difficult, just practically, it can be to get the gospel to cut through. Now, a lot of commentators have written on this passage and said, actually, in Athens, Paul failed. Actually, there weren't a lot of converts. There weren't a lot of people who turned to Jesus. And you look at his preaching, and it's not actually that Christ-centered. It's not actually that Jesus-centered. But actually, I think that's the wrong way of reading this passage, totally. You look at what happens. Paul leads a few people to saving faith in Jesus. But they're coming from a point of being millions of miles away. They're people who don't understand anything about there being one God, let alone understanding about who Jesus is. And in a very short time, he takes them on an amazing journey. And for me, that is a massive encouragement. You know, that God by his spirit can move in anyone at any time, no matter what the cultural clutter around their lives is. So let's look at what Paul does. Verse 18. He starts debating with some of the philosophers. There's some Epicurean and some Stoic philosophers, and they start talking with him. Some of them call him a babbler. It's not a nice word to be called, really, is it? What's that babbler on about? But it's even worse when you realize what the actual original word means. A babbler, in Greek, is somebody who goes along the gutter, picking up bits of food, the dregs. What's this person who's talking about these dregs of ideas on about? What's he talking about? Others say he's advocating foreign gods. We've got two groups of people, two groups of people from very different ways of looking at the world. I don't know if we've got any Greek scholars or philosopher people in the congregation this morning. Anybody? An expert? No? Well, I'll try and fill in some of the gaps. I'm not an expert on this at all. But from what I understand, the Epicureans, they were a group of people from a school of thought who didn't concern themselves too much with the worship of the ancient gods of Greece, but rather they believed that life was all about pleasure. Make yourself happy in life. Seek out the good things. Now, it wasn't always about just sort of random pleasure-seeking, you know, eat, drink, for tomorrow you die. It wasn't always that. But they were the kind of people who were seeking after tranquility, you know, really still, calm life. For them, the ideal day would be a day at the spa. I'm not talking as the spa is against the co-op, not that kind of spa. But the spa is in, you know, spa treatments and the relaxation. That, for them, was the pinnacle of life. The Stoics were very different. They liked worshipping the gods. They thought worshipping the gods was really important. The gods of ancient Greece, you know, Zeus and Artemis and all these other people. But they weren't driven by pleasure. Rather, they were driven by virtue. They wanted to be good people. They wanted to do good things. And how a person behaved to them was really important. So you've got one group of people who are all about pleasure, one group who are all about virtue. You know, the gospel of Jesus is neither of those things, is it? 
The Gospel of Jesus is not about tweaking people's behaviour to make us nice, but it's about Jesus coming into our lives with grace and offering us salvation through what he's done on the cross and resurrection. But the Stoics were very much work-based. But the Epicureans were pleasure-based. So what does Paul do? Well, he starts talking to them and gives them enough to grab their attention. The ideas that Paul brings really resonate with the culture that he finds himself in here. Now, I'm reading this, and I'm starting to think, you know, am I able to engage meaningfully in conversation with people in a multi-faith, multi-philosophy, multicultural society? Am I able to do that? Do I know how to connect with people? Could I do, could you do what Paul does here? Talk to people in a way that captures people's imagination and attention. But let's carry on because Paul gets cleverer still. The Holy Spirit is inspiring him, obviously, but he's also done his homework. He gets taken to this place. This is the Areopagus. This is um, also called Mars Hill. It's a big rock. You can see it there. That's in Athens today. And it was a place where, I suppose it was a bit like a conf- an outdoor conference center. It's a bit more glamorous than some conference centers I've been to, but it's that type of place. So people would go for discussion and debate up there. Sometimes it would be political. Sometimes it would be the kind of place you'd go and there'd be justice done there. Other times there'd be religious discussion. So what does Paul do? He's taken there and he starts a discussion. Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Yeah, everybody agrees with that. No one in Athens is going to say, you're wrong. You know, look around, you can see that is right opposite the, the Acropolis. That's near where the temples are. And this is the place of religion, of philosophy, and thinking. But then he moves on, and he starts looking at the temple to the unknown God. Athens was full of temples, but there was a, uh, there was an, uh, um, a shrine to the unknown God. Because they were scared to death of failing to recognize a God that they hadn't found out about yet. And this is actually one of those altars that have been found. It just says on it, to an unknown God. So what does Paul do? He finds a connection point. Finds a connection point. Finds a connection point with the culture with which to share Jesus. How do we connect with people in our world today? Well, we do it through friendship, don't we? If you want to get to know somebody, you have to be friendly, you have to have conversation, you have to get to know that person. But we also connect with people through understanding how they view the world, how they view things, how they view the life that we're living at the moment. And sometimes our connection with people is all about friendship. Sometimes it's all about what Paul does here and thinking about how they see the world. Lots of other times, it's about both. I don't know how often you're going to Manchester. Anybody been Manchester Christmas shopping so far? Altrincham, a few people shouting. Amazon, that's a nice easy one. (laughs) Now sometimes we've been into Manchester and you will see people preaching on the streets. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Quite often waving sort of, you know, black leather-bound Bible and preaching and having some sort of literature with them. Now, often when you hear people preaching outside, if you actually stand and listen, their message is the gospel, if, if they're from a Christian church, you know, not from some other, other grouping. But if they're from a Christian church, their message will be the gospel. But sometimes, it doesn't really connect. In fact, often, it doesn't really connect with what's going on round about it. 
Why do people go into a big city? Go on, you can shout some answers out. Why would you go into a big city? Shopping. Shopping. Lots of people there. Food. Food. Work. Business. Cinema. Cinema. Football. Football. The list goes on. We could be going to concerts. We could be doing all kinds of things. But mostly, it's material stuff, isn't it? It's the stuff of this life. It's the stuff of this world. You know, when we go into Manchester, occasionally, Claire drags me in there looking at clothes. If I go in off my own um, volition, really, I go in looking at guitars and keyboards and those kind of things, and electrical stuff. But whatever it is, it tends to be a bit like the Epicureans. Manchester is a bit of a material sort of place, isn't it? People go in there for that kind of stuff. So if you start talking randomly when people are all connecting with the culture at that level about sin and judgment and going to hell, people are just not going to listen to you. Because there is no connection. There is no connection with the culture at that point. You know, a few weeks ago, we were actually in Manchester. And they were giving out cans of Coke Zero. So being a good northerner and liking something free, I joined the queue. And I got my free can of Coke Zero and very nice, and I listened to the bit of selling blurb from the Coke people, and then we went on our way. But because they'd given something free and connected with the culture, they then got to speak to me about what they were selling. And it reminded me, actually, of a, a few years ago, we, me and Claire um, were out walking in the Peak District, and this young couple came up to us, and they looked really fearful, and they said, our church, this, this is their opening line, our church is having a barbecue tonight, would you like to come along? And we looked at one another and thought, you haven't even bothered to introduce yourself. <laughs> You're trying to connect us to your church without connecting us to one another. There was no preamble, there was no talk, there was no attempt to connect us to their culture. So we were just like, oh, it's all right, we, we actually go to a church, you know, we're, we're Christians. And they went, the, the look of relief on their faces <laughs> at that point. Well, you know, if we want to share Jesus effectively with people, we've got to learn how to connect with people. We have to learn how to connect, and where people are up to. Verse 23, it says, Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. What does Paul do now? He's got the connection point. He's with people. People are listening to him. He then goes to start to unpack the gospel message. But he does it in a way that people will understand. He uses their language, their terminology, their way of understanding... But then, we get Jesus at the end of it. You see, when Peter spoke in Acts chapter 2 after the day of Pentecost, I don't know if you can remember that far back in the book of Acts, but what Peter did, he was talking to Jews, God-fearing Jews, he went straight to the Old Testament, and he explained what was happening in relation to the Old Testament. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 16, he says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And a lot of that sermon in Acts chapter 2 is just an explanation of how the Old Testament points us to Jesus as the Messiah. And then he ends with saying, actually, you need to repent, be baptized, and accept Jesus as your Lord. What would have happened if Paul had have gone onto Mars Hill here in Athens and preached like that? Well, nobody would have understood a word he was saying. Because they didn't know about the prophet Joel. They didn't know about the revelation of God through the Old Testament. They didn't understand what that was about. So he goes in, by a way that they understand. He starts talking in a way that means something to them. And what he does is he talks about, not about revealed theology, if you want the technical terms, 
but about natural theology, about the world, the world that is around. It's very similar to what we looked at in chapter 14. And he's very clever in the way he does it. Look at this at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. The Stoics would have been clapping at this point. They'd have loved that because they thought that the Greek gods didn't actually live in the temples but were far more important than that. So he's got them on side. They'd be thinking, brilliant. Then verse 25, he is not served by human hands. The Epicureans would have loved this because they didn't think you could serve God. So they'd have been cheering at this point and clapping and thinking, what a great idea. So he's going one, then he's going the other, then he brings them both together. Look at verse 28. He quotes some Greek poets. We're not quite sure who he's quoting here. It doesn't really matter. But just that they would know what he's talking about. He uses stuff that people knew to get, him, get people on side. But now what he does is things start to change. He now brings us to looking directly at Jesus. But you know, there's a danger with our evangelism. And there's certainly a danger, I don't know if, if you can relate to this, but when I'm sharing my faith about Jesus, is that I get stuck at verse 28. I get stuck talking to people about vague ideas of God, about vague ideas of God who made the earth, but we never actually progress beyond that. You know, I think over the years, I've had the privilege of, of being involved in, in various ways of trying to share Jesus. It might be through sort of seeker services, can be through community engagement, through sharing Jesus' love practically. But it is so easy to get stuck at verse 28. Connect with the culture, learn how to share, but then never get any further. When the horrific attacks happened in Paris just a few weeks back now, you know, social media sort of went crazy with these kind of images. I don't know if those of you who are on Facebook or Twitter saw these kind of things posted all over, all over the place. Now, it was from Christians, yes, but it was also from people who had no real faith. But just that desire to pray, that desire to seek out God. You know, amen to that. We need to keep praying. I think it's so easy for Paris to have fallen off the radar. You know, this week we've been looking at, you know, bombing Syria as a country, haven't we? But actually there are families whose lives this Christmas will be wrecked by what happened in Paris, and they need to be in our prayers. They need to be in our prayers. But prayer is something that people still do. There was a poll done in 2013, and it found that 62% of 18 to 24-year-olds have some concept of God. doesn't mean they're necessarily Christians. doesn't mean that they know what that concept is, but there is just some idea of God. Now, we can think, well, that's quite depressing. What about the 38% who don't believe in God at all? That's one way of looking at it. But what about the 62% who are, in a sense, are in a verse 28 situation? They've got that far, but they don't know about Jesus. You know, Paul doesn't leave people with a vague idea of God. That simply is not enough. That simply will not do for Paul. You know, it's so easy to talk about the church. It's so easy to talk about vague ideas. But what about the next step? He's got his audience so far, and now we'll take them to look at the resurrection. Now we'll take them to look at this really critical event. Verse 31. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. And we go from connection to resurrection. 
from connecting people to actually thinking about who God is, to then pointing them to the revelation of Jesus Christ, who died and rose again. And he introduces this event, this critical event, the resurrection, that if we don't accept it and don't believe it, actually our faith is useless. You know, Paul will later say that. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If we don't get people to the resurrection, <coughs> our faith, their faith, is futile. And so we finish the book of Acts today. And it's almost Christmas. Next week we'll be looking at one of the prophecies about Jesus coming into the world. But you know, when we look at this stable and this rather eerie looking donkey staring at me again, <coughs> it isn't actually the stable that transforms the world, is it? This is only the start of a journey. This is only the first part of what will happen. It's not Christmas that is the end point of the amazing, uh, the amazing news that Jesus came into the world. The journey that starts here takes us to Calvary, takes us to the place where Jesus, the Son of God, will die for the sins of the world, will die to bring us freedom. But it doesn't end there either, does it? It goes on to resurrection, where Jesus physically raised from the dead on the third day, according to the scriptures. And it's at the resurrection that actually the power of the cross to forgive is underlined. It's at the resurrection that the status of Jesus is confirmed. It's at the resurrection that we have the hope of our resurrection to eternal life as well. But it's so easy to hide that away and get stuck at either verse 28 or with the Jesus in the manger. Yeah, Tom Wright puts it like this. He says, the resurrection isn't an extra thing. It isn't an outside thing bolted onto Christianity. But it's the launching pad for God's new creation. Jesus is the world's true Lord. But you know, the more I've been reading this this week and thinking about it, the more concerned for myself, I don't know whether you feel this, um, I've been becoming... For two reasons. One is that actually I wonder in today's world whether we are still preaching or sharing Jesus as if it's Acts chapter 2. We're still preaching a Jerusalem sermon, whereas actually we're living in somewhere very like Athens. You know, our world doesn't understand those concepts of sin and redemption and salvation that we perhaps talk about. And we need to actually grapple with what it means to live in an Athens type situation. And also, I've got concerned again, as I've just mentioned, that we so often get stuck at verse 28. We have these vague ideas of God. We're quite happy with the Jesus in the manger. But what about the resurrected, ascended Lord who is going to come and judge the living and the dead? Do we get that far? Do we get to that point? I think that's a massive challenge for us as a church, for individuals. We've talked a lot about the church going into a new chapter, and, you know, this, this term has been the start of a new chapter. But I want to ask us a question. Will we make this a chapter that is rooted in the gospel of Jesus? The full gospel of Jesus. Breakfast in Bethlehem is fantastic. What a great way of connecting with people this Christmas. But let's not leave it there. Let's keep moving people on. Because God has placed us, not in Athens, not in Jerusalem, but in a very nice place called Lymph. But it's a place that's full of problems. It's a place that has desperate need of a saviour. It's a place that has desperate need to hear 
about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Do we grapple? Do we think about what it means to share Jesus with people who are obsessed with materialism? I'm sure there's lots of people in Lim who are like that. Or about people who are atheists. Or about the agnostics. You know, they're probably rather like the people on Mars Hill. Or people who just want to be nice. Lots of people want to be nice. What about people who want to be happy? What about people who are living in despair? Your world is a postmodern world. That means that, you know, people don't often believe in absolute truth. Have we learned how to grapple with that? Are we thinking about how we share Jesus? Are we seeking those real connection points? Yeah, I really want to encourage us as a church, as we're going through Advent to Christmas, to not shortchange people with the gospel that we preach. To not get stuck at verse 28, or not get stuck in the manger. But to proclaim a Jesus that is risen, ascended, and returning. You know, our hope is built in Jesus. The hope of our eternity is in the resurrection. The message of the gospel does not end here. Are we excited by that? Are we excited at proclaiming a resurrected Jesus? Because that is the hope that will bring peace in Syria, not bombs. That is the hope that will bring restoration in Paris. That is the hope that will mend broken homes. The Jesus, the crucified Son of God, who died and has risen and is coming again, will be our Lord. Let's not shortchange people. Let's do what Paul did. Get from verse 28 and tell people about Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for your word to us. I want to thank you for for Paul, for the way you called him and the way he grappled with the culture of his day. Lord, I want to pray for each of us that you'll help us to do the same. Lord, as we talk to people, give us your words, give us your heart, we ask. Lord, help us to share you as the resurrected Son of God. In whose name we ask. Amen.